0: Welcome to Divine Renewal Radio with Miriam Jano. Divine Renewal Radio is a portal where we share the joy of remembering, reconnecting, and reclaiming our dreams, hopes, and desires. Here, you're not alone. You're seen and heard and witnessed by a sisterhood of courageous women stepping forward together into healing ourselves and each other, sharing insights, questions, tools, inspiration, connection, and our personal journeys. I'll be talking with inspiring leaders and entrepreneurs who are walking beside us on the path of the sacred feminine, sharing insights and exploration on matters of mind, body, emotion, and spirit. What does true well-being look like? How do we find a place of balance in our lives? What does it really mean to embody our divine feminine nature? Welcome to the Divine Renewal Radio, my sister. I am your host, Miriam Jano. Catherine Halt is a psychotherapist, teacher, and writer. Her practice focuses on healing trauma, recovery from chronic dieting, and listening to the unconscious as portals to spiritual empowerment. She is the creator of True Hunger, an online course and body of work that serves to support women in learning to trust their physical hunger in order to hear longings of the soul. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Happy to have you here at Divine Renewal. Mm, Thank you, Miriam. I'm glad to be here. Mm, This is a very wonderful and such a conversation that is so, so very needed amongst so many women um, who are really, really literally starving, starving to feed the unfeedable, starving to be seen, starving to understand what's happening with their bodies. Um, I, I have, in, I have so many questions for you. I love these words you use on your site. I help people remember how to listen to their inner wisdom and truth, moving through phases of crisis and questions and reconnecting with their deeper desires and purpose for being here. I help people navigate their soul initiations. Tell us a little bit more about that and can you discuss how that is all related into um, your online course, uh, True Hunger, and how it's all interconnected? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, my, I'm a psychotherapist in practice and I work with people who have experienced trauma, who are in crisis. You know, often it takes pretty big life experience to get us to make the phone call to a therapist. Yes. And so that's when people contact me, it's usually in those moments when the whatever had been working has stopped working. So that can look like all kinds of things. And one of those pieces can be food. You know, when our, our systems are no longer willing to tolerate how much we are eating or not eating uh, how we're treating ourselves. So it can be external crises. They can be internal. And then, so psychotherapy is um, one tool I use to help people through these life initiations. You know, on, a, on not everyone who sees me is struggling with food and their bodies. But True Hunger was designed for people uh, who really are. And True Hunger came about because I started to notice that the... Living in a diet culture, in a culture that emphasizes a restraint, emphasizes health—you know, quote—I use quotes around health. <laughs> this idea of health, yes, tends to lead to a repression and suppression of instinct and suppression of the body, and we really cannot get to the deeper levels of soul hunger. Those the things that we want on a visceral level when we're hungry or when we're not eating what our bodies want us to eat. So true hunger is the synthesis of kind of a psycho spiritual approach that I was noticing we had to have of, you know, what happens when we don't let ourselves physically tolerate hunger and fullness, what happens on a spiritual level there? Mm-hmm. So that's what the course is about. And often it does come about, We you know, our, uh, are these soul initiations do mean we're in a crisis before things get better. So uh, that's one of the pieces of True Hunger and it's one of the main things that I work with in my uh, private practice.
0: Yes, Uh, and how did you come to this understanding? Was there a personal event or what Mm -hmm. I I love to call a spiritual intervention, which is always the case, at least I know it was for me, Uh, something specific in time, place, or in part of your life that brought you to this understanding?
1: Yeah, of course. (laughs) So I struggled with food and living in my body for a really long time, and I was also really uh, academically motivated, um, intellectual, and I was pretty successful in those realms. And so there was this mix of accomplishment and also suffering in the midst of it. And so when I, um, there was a certain point when I decided that I really did need to get some help with an eating disorder. And I started therapy and was doing all this work and did group therapy, and it was all so amazing. And um, those concrete pieces of psychotherapy, of group psychotherapy, of really looking at family patterns, looking at emotions, so, so valuable. And then I... It's almost a, you know, it's an unfolding process. The deeper we go into the psyche, the more we go into the body, more is revealed, right? Mm-hmm.
0: So That's well, the connection. It's the connection of, uh, I mean, there's so much disconnect from our own body. So uh-huh. we land back into our bodies. Yeah, so much opens. Yeah, So yeah, yeah. it started to lead me down
1: a path of, I, I studied energy medicine more along more sort of shamanic um, medicine traditions because I needed more. And so as I studied that, I noticed that I could really see how much time had been wasted in this suppression of appetite and mm-hmm. this control and manipulation of food and what that, was, that had done on a spiritual level. Um, so that was, so part of my healing was my own study and was my own um, embodiment. And I see that in clients too, because it's easy to go to the spiritual and forget the psychological, or it's easy to go to the psychological and forget the spiritual. Yes. We we need that full body, that full psychic container. And that's, that's really what I'm trying to, to offer is that, is this embrace that, yeah, our histories, our personal family histories matter. And this, these things that we can't fully explain that live in our bodies, our spiritual experiences, are also valid. Mm. And without without the full spectrum of you know, without holding all those pieces, then we we can have gaps in our healing process. So yeah. that's one of the things we am holding. And there's a big cultural component. Absolutely. Traitor is a huge I I think this is culturally constructed. The feminine as a repressed archetypal mm value system is has been transferred on to women. You know, it's not necessarily the same thing. Women and the feminine, you know, I'm distinguishing. But there is something there. And diet culture is a system of oppression. (laughs) It keeps people small, it keeps us quiet, quite obedient. It keeps us being really good consumers.
0: Yes. Uh, in fact, you, you are bringing me to the next question. I wanted to discuss why is it that the process of questioning and deciding to make changes is decidedly a feminine journey. Mm. You have a quote in your website that was very much like it hit home. Here you will find information about this markedly feminine journey from the everyday woman to the woman who begins to question to question her life to the one who decides she has to make a change, all the way to the woman who has made it through the soul initiation and is living her purpose in a powerful, clear, and pleasurable way. What are those differences, um, Catherine, between powerful, powerful, clear, and pleasurable? There is so much taboo in the word pleasure, in the word powerful. In the, w- in the word of clarity for women, why as as a culture or as as how we have been suppressed as women, why are these so hard to live by mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's so
1: hard to trust ourselves because we have systems that are set up to benefit from our self mistrust mm-hmm. so if we think about you know, why is it so hard, I, well, I'll start with an example. I see a lot of clients, um, young women who, mostly, yeah, younger women who are questioning um, their bodies, living, how to live in my body. I don't know how to deal with food. I don't know how to deal with relationships, all these big questions. And sometimes I'll ask them, you know, what's your opinion on blank? You know, what do you think about this? It could be a family pattern. It could be something happening in the world. And often I hear this sense of doubt, like, well, I don't really know. And there's an uh, opinion is not clarified. And I really am struck in these moments when women cannot name or say what they think. (laughs) There's a tendency to withhold opinion in a clear way. Hmm. I think this is connected to body mistrust. So having uh, an ability to see clearly, to see through systems of oppression, to see through capitalistic structures that benefit from our own uh, internalized misogyny, is, that's a hard nut to crack. I mean, it is hard to discuss in a system that values uh, you know, women who are dieting. You know, you're being good, you're being responsible, you're quote unquote taking care of yourself, exercising right, eating right. It is hard to question that system because it is ingrained. You're the one to come out and say, I don't know if that's really working for me. My body doesn't want to work out like that. <laughs> my yeah. body doesn't want to eat that kale smoothie every morning, then what are you up against? Well you're up against a lot. You're up against a pretty big economic system at play. You're up against a system of capitalism and patriarchy. So all of a sudden you could be the crazy one. That is a big risk to take on a psychological level is to be the one to question such large systems of control. So I do think there's this way that it's easier to mistrust the body and it's easier to mistrust ourselves then to point the finger outwards and be like, wait, 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 wait. I don't know if this system is set up to support me. I don't know if this system is really, you know, that, that's a big thing to hold. That's a, you have to have a pretty strong uh, sense of self and psychological container internally to say, I don't know if I'm the crazy one. Maybe it's outside of me.
0: It's so interesting. I know, Catherine, because even with, my, um, with myself, having gone through the spectrum of anorexia and bulimia and whatnot and back and forth and totally obsessed with food, um, in my early years of discovery of my healing journey, one of the things that I do know now is that women who have struggled with food and body image their entire life, really what is happening, or at least in my case, and I've seen this in so many clients, is a complete um, rebellion against this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they had no other way than to obviously access the one thing that is abundant everywhere, everywhere, every single day, which is to overeat or not eat at all. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there is so much emotion behind food, of a way of saying, to as a way of saying to everyone, an entire system, uh, an entire conditioning. Parents, family, you know, just get the hell out! Like yeah. this is not what is is serving me. Right, and I love that idea
1: that you're speaking to of the wisdom in the symptom. But yes. The symptom isn't the problem. It can be problematic on the physical level. You know, the body suffers when it's starved or purged. And yet, you, yeah, you're right. Like, what is going on there? What am I trying to become invisible towards? What mm-hmm. am I hiding from? What am I protesting? What am I refusing by throwing it up? I'll take it in and then I'll throw it up in your face. You know, there's this. Um, aggression that often comes with purging and this stubborn like fierceness with starvation so and so much suffering under that but I do think there's so much to listening to the wisdom of the symptom and to get to what what is the what is the thing that I'm trying to do here instead of just cope
0: Exactly, which which brings me to this 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 comment that I in question that I wanted to that I have for you. It feels like your program and the practices that you offer are really truly what every woman is so starving for, which is validation Mm -hmm. and 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 helping people to feel secure that they're making the right moves for themselves. But why is it that why? Why is it that validation, acknowledging, Mm -hmm. so important for our nutritional emotional health? Right. Well, validation helps us not feel
1: crazy on, on a basic level. You know, hearing someone say, I get it, has so many physiological implications. You know, if someone says to you, I really get it, I feel that too. Can you sense in your body how immediately that takes one layer of stress off? So there's this this physiological layer of when someone validates us, we don't feel so crazy, don't feel so out of control, like we're the only ones. And mm-hmm. I do think women have been systematically isolated to stay a little crazy. <laughs> you know, when, And a little and small. Now, and a little small. So when we start to make these connections, these underground um, connections you know women meeting and I, I think it's so interesting I have so many um, councils and women's circles that I've been to that meet in these like basements and these small places and you know these these roots of healing are often underground for women we find our way but they're not often now they are with the internet you know we, we can find circles of validation but we've had to look for it you know
0: it's so true Catherine I've never made that connection but that that it wow yeah you're absolutely right
1: And you know validation is mythological too I'll share this little piece cuz I've been studying it studying it in a um in a doctoral program in Jungian psychology and I've been looking at this myth of Inanna
0: Are you familiar with the Sumerian myth of Inanna and Ereshkigal I don't even I don't even want to tell you you're going to think I'm crazy <laughs> <laughs> Here we go again. So um I have a friend that uh is uh she's a tantric teacher and of course she says everybody your your pussy needs to have a name. And sure Uh-oh. enough, which name did I pick, Inanna. Amazing. So, <laughs> yeah. Am I familiar with Inanna? Absolutely. Amazing. Yes, I am. <laughs> Well, the short Uh, version... For those people who, for our audience who's listening to this conversation, you have to, have to please share with everyone who Inanna is and why is she such a huge representation. I love
1: this myth. So Inanna is the goddess of the upper world, and Erishka is her sister who's the goddess of the underworld. And this is a very short, short explanation. But Mm -hmm. Inanna decides that she needs to go visit her sister Arishkagal in the underworld because her husband has died, Arishkagal's husband has died. So Inanna says, okay, I need to go pay my condolences. And she knows it's a dangerous journey. It's not a given that she'll come out alive, and it's not a given that it will go well. So she has to prepare, and she does that by telling her kind of assistant in Shubar, keep watch. If I'm not back in three days, send help. And they're like, okay. So Inanna gets ready to go into the underworld. The first thing we notice in this myth is that she goes willingly. That doesn't always happen psychologically. Mm -hmm. We don't always go willingly into the underworld to meet this um, chaotic figure in ourselves. Sometimes we're forced there. So this is interesting right off the bat. She's going willingly. And to prepare, to go through the seven gates uh, that protect the underworld she she has seven offerings she has seven layers from her head down to her feet um, to go through these gates at each gate she's asked to surrender one so she takes off her crown she takes off her necklace then she takes off her breastplate her you know belt her shoes all the way down and you can think of it as the seven chakras you know where we have to fully yes. surrender uh-huh. and she is naked at the bottom of the underworld and sees her sister Riishkagalll and Ereshkigal ends up murdering her and hangs her on a meat hook. So she is destroyed. She, this is not a pretty picture. And Ereshkigal then is wailing, lamenting, grieving this kind of interesting moment. And all mythologists have different ways. Everyone has a different way of interpreting this. Some people describe it as labor pains. But regardless, this sister who just murdered Inanna in this violent way is now grieving this. And so time goes by, three days goes by, Inanna's helper says, okay, I have to send help. She's been gone for three days. So he appeals to several different gods and beings and none will help except for Enki. And this is a very powerful god, and he says, okay, I'll help you. I'm gonna send three little pieces of dust from under my fingernail and they are going to be able. Will be so small. They're going to slip through the gates of the underworld and help Inanna. And they're like, okay, I don't. You know, this is kind of a weird thing to offer, but mm-hmm. they have life and water with them to give to Inanna when they get down there. So these tiny specks of dust, they some people call them little mourners. These dust mites are able to pass through the underworld. And when they get to the base of the underworld, they see Ereshkigal wailing and grieving, and screaming, and what they do is they land on her shoulder, and they start to echo her, Mm -hmm. and as she says, oh my god, oh my god, you know, all this like wailing, they go, oh my god, oh my god, and they wail with her, so they echo, this is validation, (laughs) this is mythological validation, Right. seeing this psychologically, that in the midst, when we're at the base, when we're grieving the horror of life, and like how much suffering we're in, that echo is so relieving to the point where Irishkagal stops crying after they've done several rounds of this and they wail and wail. They echo her back to her and say it back to her. They don't even add anything. They just echo.
0: Mm. And she
1: brings Inanna back to life. <laughs> and then Inanna is sent back to the upper world and is initiated. And yes, the sacrifice, you know, she's not like clean and pure, like a new baby. She's, A woman she's initiated and there's a sacrifice
0: idea go go ahead go ahead go
1: ahead yes that's just the validation you know I don't think we've made it up there is something mythological in the power of validation of being echoed of someone saying I'm gonna listen and do this with you
0: yes absolutely it's so important, and it's so important also to be witnessed in that knowing, in that, yeah. in that validation. To, it's almost like um, it, it's what makes it real.
1: Yeah, and it's not the pretty times. No, exactly. It's the worst. It's the worst times that we need that echoing. It's yeah. the
0: place absolutely absolutely well it's so fun it's not funny i'm just actually i have the shivers that you're telling the story about inanna because then (laughs) it's back to this awesome question which is one of my favorite subjects uh that you mention a lot in your body of work is leaning into the body Mm pleasures and desires yet again another taboo or another big massive conversation that women have suppressed Mm-hmm. And that women are so fearful and um, and yet so much of our of women who are hung, who are holding this hunger and this need for validation they just keep those parts of themselves so quiet and, and really truly frankly just completely disconnected. Can you mm-hmm. speak more about how we can how we can embody the word embody is being thrown out it's like a buzzword these days. Uh-huh. Um what does it look like what is embodiment and how can women is that something we can obtain or is that something like the word you know oh well we just have to love ourselves which right. is somewhat of a cliche what is embodiment
1: well Miriam a <laughs> question yeah. but i i do a lot of somatic trauma work yeah. and i do think there is you're right this buzzword of embodiment and on a very uh, practical level, it's being able to feel the body from the inside out versus think about it from the outside in. Mm. So it's called proprioception, this ability to feel the body and not just think, oh, my thigh feels this way, to actually sense it. So it's kind of that nonverbal ability to sense. And the reason why this is so powerful, actually, this is an interesting um, Thing that we now know from somatic psychology and neuroscience. Mm-hmm. There's so much happening there these days. It is. It's
0: incredible how fast and how how quickly it's growing. Yeah, that there's
1: right brain. If I'm going to be simplistic about it, left brain, right brain regulation. So one of the things that people with food and body um, distress struggle with is tolerating emotions, or and not knowing what they're feeling. So either emotions are so strong that they overtake and then, behave, you know, purging happens or, or restricting happens and we go all into the head. It's almost a bypass. Like I, I can't feel what I'm feeling, so I'm going to figure out what to do to distract myself mm-hmm. on this
0: food level. Well, it's a mechanism, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And it can
1: also be a way of if I, if I don't feel anything at all, it can create feeling. So, you know, it's, if I'm numb, that's almost more painful than feeling something. Hmm. So one of the ways that embodiment works, learning to sense on a subtle level what the body's feeling is that, the, so you can imagine that the right brain is the sensing brain. So it's the part that's non, it would be kind of nonverbal awareness, the part that can actually feel, not just in the words, but feel that my stomach is um, open and relaxed, or it can feel the tension on the inside of my right thigh. You know, it can sense it's the part that senses, and then the left brain names. So embodiment has this interesting thing because if we can sense on one level and then put words to the sensing, it creates this ability to regulate emotions and to hold them. So it's, it's kind of like a psychic container. It helps us contain what we're feeling because we can feel it and we name it. I think of it as kind of like a mothering process. Mm-hmm oh, what are you feeling? Oh, that's what it is. And you know, when someone's like, you know, you look sad and you weren't aware of it. And there's that exhale. It's like, you're right. I have been feeling sad lately.
0: That's what we're doing. So there's this. Catherine's sorry, Catherine, because it's sometimes hard to identify what we're feeling. Too. Yes. Yes, it totally is.
1: Yeah. And that's
0: That's one of the reasons why There
1: is this, you know, we don't do this all alone. And, but naming that we don't know what we're feeling Mm -hmm. is part of naming it. You know, if I, if I don't know what I'm feeling and I can say, wow, I don't know what I'm feeling. (laughs) It's, it's kind of paradoxical, but that in and of itself is, starts to let us feel held and brings back that sense of like containment of, of that safety. When we talk about pleasure, we're often talking about safety. Yes. I, I cannot feel pleasure if I don't have some level of safety. So, pleasure and safety on a somatic body level really go together. Mm-hmm. And to feel pleasure, for the body to open to feel pleasure, there has to be a sense of relative safety. We can't be in that fight flight state and open to an orgasm
0: (laughs) you know we're that's like
1: not really gonna happen
0: and you know what Catherine? more than just an orgasm you know what you're bringing to mind as well in fact this could be an aha moment for me Mm -hmm. often you know we we have this understanding of i usually have to be a while in nature it's not like i can step into nature and feel peace i have to be in it and only at In 10, 15 minutes, if I'm walking a park or a trail, that's when I start feeling the the power of of nature and I start feeling the interaction with nature. Yeah. And Catherine, coming from South America, Colombia, which has the most gorgeous greenery you can possibly imagine, what was very traumatic was living in the 80s and in the 90s during a drug war. Mm. So... From a, to a certain degree, that level of trauma, of course, that post-trauma has always been there, but I'm starting to wonder if my disconnect with being outdoors, Mm -hmm. why it takes me such a long time, even in the most gorgeous places. I could be in Hawaii, I could be in Bali, I, I mean, it doesn't even need to be that exotic, it could be just a simple park, and it takes me a while to feel safe. yeah. And, and, and I wonder, like, I mean, yes, we're talking about orgasms, but we're also talking about just feeling safe in my body. Like I'm not going to be attacked. Like there's not going to be a bomb going off. Like there's not going to be someone who's going to want to rape me. Like it's, it's a sense of not feeling safe. Yes. Takes me a while.
1: Right. And I use orgasm as a kind of an extreme and you're right. There are these levels of pleasure that are so much more subtle And what's, there's this also interesting thing that happens when we do feel safe and about to kind of rest into pleasure, that the moment that the body registers that, it's almost like it says, oh, it's safe enough to process all my trauma, (laughs) you know? So there's this, this kind of phenomenon called relaxation induced panic. Yes. There's this huge push for mindfulness, for pleasure, for relaxing the body but if there is trauma in the background in the nervous system then the moment that the body starts to register safety and relaxation which is very similar then we can have flashbacks we can the body can start to shake it can start to say oh now I'm going to bring all this stuff up it's finally safe the coast is clear so it's a full sabotage it's, well, it's not necessarily a sabotage as much as wisdom. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I, now I want to get processed. Because the body does process, it'll complete its traumatic. So if you think about in a moment of trauma, so if uh-huh. there's something that's happened, what makes it traumatic is that we can't do anything about it. So that if, if someone um, you know, reaches for us and we can't push away, we don't get that you know, arm feeling of pushing and we don't get to move those hormones into a push away, then that response gets stored in the nervous system. So when we finally do get to relax and get safety, then that push, we might, and we are not, it might not be conscious. And without more like really, uh, like a lot of subtle body awareness and knowing what's going on, you won't know this is what's happening most Mm -hmm. likely. Yeah, those hormones and that instinctual push, so my left arm, whenever I relax, my left arm might be doing something weird. And it could be attempting to process and move through that, that one piece of trauma. Does that make
0: sense? Of course, it does. It does. Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. Which So then why is it that, well, I have two questions that are coming up. I guess the first one is, when are we ready to let go? Why is it so different for everybody and why is it that some people just become totally addicted to the, to the trauma of repeating and replaying and, in and, and continuing to hurt themselves through whether binging starvation or different situations in their life? Right. Why, why, what, what is happening there that they're just not willing to let go
1: that's a good question. And I don't know if I feel fully equipped to answer it, but the, what I've seen is that, you know, we if we think about how our, you know, kind of dominant Western North American culture has treated, um, mental and emotional illness and addiction in particular, we've tend to think that it's based on, like, we have to be ready. So that's, you know, that's the addiction model that's disease based. Okay, if you're not ready, you're not gonna get better. So it's, it's all based on the, the person making an internal change. What's interesting though is that we, we know that that through so much more research these days, that model of independence has fallen apart. So one reason why we see some people just not getting better might be personal. It could be that uh, the, the secondary gain, you know, the, the gain that we get from pathology is just so strong. Like I just get too much from what's keeping me sick. It's just too strong. Mm-hmm. More often, though, there's a missing piece of support. More often, there's an economic problem. Like I can't handle how stressful my economic situation is. So I'm going to keep drinking. I can't handle how painful this relationship is. So I'm going to keep starving. You know, there might be a piece of support that is bigger than, than we can handle. Mm-hmm. And there is a whole field of, in addiction psychology called motivational interviewing because we now know that uh, through support, through a particular kind of therapy, people who have addictions you know, they don't have to hit bottom anymore. (laughs) People Mm -hmm. can be supported in working towards motivation and not just quote unquote, whenever you're ready. So Mm -hmm. I think it's, we're, we're learning that more as a culture. I don't know if I can say definitively, why do people stay in in habits and patterns? Um, Because we're just learning so much about the nervous system, why trauma stays because addiction is so much about trauma Yes. Why we why we redo it over and over again? So that that's just a big, big, big question,
0: Catherine. And what is your um your belief system in trauma passed on through lineage, especially for us yeah. women that we are yeah. so connected to the feminine, to our mothers and our great grandmothers, yeah. and if, well, if I'm gonna be really Uh, uh, kind of
1: scientific about it, what's really validating to me is that what what I know on a sort of intuitive body level is now being confirmed through epigenetic studies. Mm -hmm. So my experience working with clients and for myself is that we do inherit trauma and we can think about it. There's so many perspectives to imagine this from. So one is genetic. If we're thinking like super... um, like scientifically based. Genetically we know that if there is an example is that if there was famine uh several generations back, it stays in the DNA, in the genetic code for a very long time. So you can trace famine now genetically. Wild, right? Super. <laughs> and we also know, I mean if you've done any kind of therapy, there are some pieces that psychologically we hit that I know I've had it myself where I'm like, this is not mine. (laughs) You know, I have not had a situation to make me feel that this should be true. You know, whatever it is, using my voice, uh, feelings in my body, um, fear of certain parts of, of, you know, being in the world. Like that's, that has not been my full life experience. So where does that come from? It could come from genetics. It could come from, um, energetic memory lines you know this more uh, spiritual you know ancestor lines and it also could come from socialization that my grandmother learned from her grandmother from her grandmother her com- grandmother that this world is not safe for women in a particular way so do this you know and it, you just kind of get trained
0: i think they're all true and and not only that the reinforcement the constant uh, be careful with this be careful yeah. with that and it just becomes so repetitive yeah be good what, what, yeah. exactly yeah. Uh-huh. which 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 so often happens with our food right I mean right. it happens also when we how our mothers see their body image it it also it's, to, it's totally passed down through the lineage yeah. If yeah. Your mother loved herself and she liked what she saw when she passed the mirror, then chances are you're going to feel the same thing. Right.
1: Right. And how our mothers and their mothers talk about their bodies and not to leave out the men. You know, how men talk about women's bodies, how men talk about their bodies or don't. You yes. know, what's said and what's not said is also how we're trained. You know, mom isn't the only piece of the puzzle. How dad responds and anyone else <laughs> uh, matters as well.
0: And, and also how, um, what is accepted? What do we see uh, in our home that is accepted? I find it's very important. Uh, we, I know in my home, having a dynamic of a boy and a girl and being married for 16 years now, what, how do we speak to each other? Uh, and what is accepted, uh, even amongst siblings, what is accepted in when do we, how do we util- utilize those words? I know that for example, between my two children who are only three years apart, uh, the importance of no and what it means when we say stop mm-hmm. and how quick are we willing to stop, even though it's our sibling and mm-hmm. respect the ability of, of, of the rules of, of our voice being heard. Right. So, yeah, Wow. These are such fascinating, fascinating uh, topics uh, of the mind, body, and soul, right? Hmm. Um, how can people connect with you and follow your work? Hmm. Well, people can go to my website. It's
1: katherinecholt.com. And they, I have my True Hunger course that's available at any time. I'll be starting a, another round. If people want to go as a group, I'll be doing that soon. So you can sign up on my email list mm. on my website. And But it's also ready. If anyone wants to um, start it, it's available at all times. So all the materials are ready to go. So that's available.
0: Fantastic. And
1: I teach an online class with uh, a colleague of mine. Her name is Debbie Corso. We teach a class on a dialectical behavior therapy every Monday. And if people are interested in that, that's at uh, emotionallysensitive.com. And we have a book coming out, Debbie and I do, about uh, being emotionally sensitive and using dialectical behavior therapy skills. Tell us quickly a little bit about that. Yeah, that's that's a little bit of a different branch of what I do. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, But DBT was designed as a therapy that was designed for people who are emotionally sensitive who have histories of self-harming or suicidal behaviors and people who have that past tend to be very sensitive and pick up on emotions really quickly the superpower in it is that people tend to be really intuitive so sensitivity can go a few different ways you know if we if we if we stay in trauma it's it traumatizes us and if we have support and healing, then it can be this really powerful ability to see and perceive. Um, but this class we run every Monday, it's, and Debbie um, is more in charge of it, I co-teach it with her, mm-hmm. and her book is coming out in April with New Harbinger Press, a big psychology publisher. And it's a journal, so it's interactive, and um, I'll have that on my website soon, it's not up quite yet.
0: Okay, okay, very well. Well, you're just all this incredible information and knowledge. And Catherine Halt, um, thank you. We will have all the links and her social links and links to her website at CatherineHalt.com. Catherine, it was such a pleasure having you.
1: Thank you, Miriam. You too. So nice to be
0: here. Thank
1: you. Rich thank conversation.
0: you. Yes, extremely important and so needed and to know that the help is there and the help is available mm-hmm. and that there is no reason to, um, to isolate ourselves and, and, and struggle because I know that had I known that this, that I could have spoken about my own hunger and I think the journey, the healing journey would have been much quicker and less painful. Mm-hmm. So thank you for doing the work that you're doing and bringing it into the world.
1: Oh, you're welcome, and thank you. Mm,
0: Blessings, Catherine.